Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. Navigating the world of product marketing is tough. At Fluvio, we get it, probably more than anyone else. We see you wrestling with resources, proving your team's worth, and juggling changing responsibilities all the time. But imagine a world where you could confidently and systematically tackle your product marketing challenges. That's where our go-to-market model comes in. The Fluvio go-to-market model guides each one of our engagements with the likes of Stack Overflow, LinkedIn, NASDAQ, and many more, and provides companies with a path to clarity and success. And now, we're thrilled to package up that model and deploy it within our new product, the Fluvio Go-To-Market Assessment. The Go-To-Market Assessment delivers transformative insights to gauge your team's performance, identify key investment areas, and sets up benchmarks for success. If you are a product or marketing leader, get started today with our proprietary Go-To-Market Assessment and receive a customized evaluation and actionable insights within one week. Just go to fluviomarketing.com slash GTM assessment today. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I had on Nicole Silver. Nicole is the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Volta, a member of the Shell Group, where she plays an instrumental role in revolutionizing the electric vehicle charging infrastructure that will set up our EV drivers for decades to come. She's a visionary marketer who leverages strategic insight and creative solutions to promote Volta's mission of making EV charging more accessible and convenient. Before joining Volta, Nicole held leadership roles at several high-profile organizations, including Button and Moat, and she started her career in politics, which we touch on in this episode. We dive headfirst into the intersection of technology, media, and climate awareness, Learn more about carbon emissions and how transportation is evolving. Dissect how a career in politics can teach you marketing tactics. And we learn how to make decisions with a macro to micro approach. Now, a quick note before we jump in, all views expressed on this podcast are those of Nicole and are not necessarily reflective of Volta or Shell Group company views. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, Nicole, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Excited to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And are you still in New York? Remind me where you are. I am in New York, enjoying the last few days of July and the heat here. Yeah, it's crazy. Summer's already moving along pretty quickly. Well, thanks again for taking the time to sit down with me. I think you've listened to a few podcasts in the in the past, but I always like to start with allowing my guests to kind of give their story, their journey of how they've come to become a leader in whatever field they're leading. Um, for you, you're obviously a marketing leader. We're going to touch on several roles you've had in your current role over at Volta. Um, but yeah, if you could just kind of give us your story. How did you get to where you are today? I started my career on Capitol Hill, which is sometimes a surprise for people. Uh, but there are a couple of things that I learned from that that have been really key to my career since then. The first thing 
is that in order to get that job, I pounded the pavement. I really wanted to work on the Hill. I It was something that I was committed to doing and I had a deadline. I had to have a job by October 1st, otherwise I would get another job. And I applied, I networked, I visited offices and I got my job. I started on September 27th. So that experience of pounding the pavement to go after what you want, highly recommend it. Um, but the two probably more relevant for marketing career things are one, um, on Capitol Hill, it is all about creating a message for your audience, whether you are speaking with a lawyer and you're speaking in legalese going through legislation, or you're talking with a constituent and you're explaining really complicated legislation in language that's going to make sense to anybody. And it really taught me early on in my career how to be thoughtful about the language I was using and make sure that it was going to resonate for an audience. And the second thing about working on Capitol Hill is that in order to get anything done, you have to build consensus and figure out who you need to work with to move things forward. And so it taught me really early on to be thinking about who to work with, how to how to encourage other folks to work with me and create a reason for them to be interested in doing. And that's really something that I have taken with me uh, throughout my career. Uh, while I was on Capitol Hill, I had technology and telecommunications in my portfolio and realized how interested I was in technology and how much of an effect it had on consumers. And that really shaped my career. I'd say since that, I have been building marketing organizations in high growth technology companies, uh, lots lots of software, uh, lots of storytelling, going back to creating messages. Uh, and I think I've really loved that. With the pandemic, I paused to think about what I really wanted to be doing. And personally, I've always been passionate about our planet and sustainability. My mom likes to joke about how I presented to the Conservation Commission in my town in fifth grade. And so COVID gave me an opportunity to think about where were there opportunities to leverage my expertise in building marketing organizations and technology companies and make an impact on the planet. Um, and so I was thrilled to find Volta, which at the time was a growing electric vehicle charging company uh, that doubled as a media network. And I had been in media, uh, so I had expertise. I had expertise building marketing and got to join this really exciting movement. And that's where I've been for the past few years. Yeah, it's really, it presented like a perfect pivot for you if you wanted to get into climate tech. And, uh, you know, we're going to touch on Volta in a bit and how there's sort of two sides to that, that business. But before we do that, I actually want to learn a little bit more about the, the career in politics. So like, what was that? What was your first role? You said you had in your portfolio climate. Um, I can't remember what else you said, but yeah. what, what is that role? So it's funny for, I don't know, it's summer and, and college students are about to embark on their first year for anyone going to school. And there's so much, does your college ma major matter? Does the, do the courses you take matter? And for me, they did. I had in college, uh, I was American studies major. I was really interested in immigration and I'd done a bunch of courses in immigration and had that on my resume. And so I'm applying for all of the entry level jobs on Capitol Hill. The first job is really answering the phone um, and I'm not getting too much traction. And the next thing I know, I get a call from Herb Cole's Senate Judiciary Committee office asking me to come in for a legislative aid interview, which was not an entry level job. It was sort of the next level. Um, and it took me a while, but eventually I asked them, why me? Why did you call me? Why did you pull me from the resume bank? And one of the things they said, the portfolio of issues I had as part of the Judiciary Committee was antitrust and telecom and technology and also immigration. And so they said they saw the immigration bullet point on my resume, and that was why they picked me for an interview. 
Um, and at the time, thinking back to 2008 to 2011, there was a lot of immigration activity happening, and it was a big percentage of the role that hasn't really changed. Um, but it's just, it's kind of funny to think and be able to look back at how things work. And if you're able, it highlights why pursuing interests and communicating what you learned, what you did, what you achieved and pursuing an interest can really set you up for success because it was something I was interested in. I pursued it and it ultimately helped lead to my first job. And uh, there are probably some parallels in how in me getting to Volta and really being open and having conversations about what I was looking for, where I could offer value and where I wanted to learn and uh, that I've been able to take with me throughout. So a little off script here, but if it, when you're recruiting for anyone in your marketing organization at Volta or even prior to Volta at Button, what have you, are you looking for those things like that they have a past career and passionate about the specific area that you want them to be focused on or like, do they have to have very specific criteria? It depends on the role. So generally my philosophy on hiring is that I'm looking for behavioral and attributes that will set somebody up for success on the team. And that is a really positive can do demeanor resilience and being able to handle challenges and keep moving. Um, and an interest in learning, because I've mentioned I've been in high growth technology companies, I've been in industries that are changing. And in marketing, things are changing, whether it's the latest threads or AI, AI, uh, any marketer on my team needs to be comfortable and interested in evolving at the pace of or even faster than both our industry and marketing. So that's first and foremost. And then there are select roles where specific skill expertise matters for somebody who's going to be in marketing automation or marketing operations and managing our tech stack. They need to be experts because the team is relying on them to be the expert for the team. Uh, for somebody who is going to be in product marketing, as an example, ideally product marketer really understands the frameworks and principles of being in a product being in product marketing because they're bringing that expertise in. Do they need to be the expert on the industry? Not always. If you're hungry and you're learning and you can apply a framework and a set of practices to the industry, sometimes coming in not knowing gives you a blank slate to then really, really listen to the customer feedback and really look at the market and really take a questioning approach rather than assuming that you know it and assuming that you can just move forward. So much more skills and much more attitudes and approaches for me than specific skills. That's also related to the types of environments that I've worked in. I can certainly imagine in some other places that might not be the same need. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, particularly product marketing and the fact you don't necessarily have to have expertise in a certain industry or segment. You can imagine like our company, I have to face that objection all the time with, with marketing or product leaders that might contract with us. Uh, yeah. that we're able to get up to speed and we have frameworks and processes that have been proven to to be successful. I always think about uh, my boss when I was a button, who was our chief revenue officer and leader, he used to always encourage us to make sure that we were taking an outside look in rather than an inside look out. And I think that that's so important for marketers. It's so important in product marketing. If you assume you know everything about the industry, you can be operating on assumptions and if you're able to really take an outside look and be studying and be a student of your customers, the market, the trends, you can often come up with a much different and much more effective approach. So I do want to chat a little bit about the EV landscape and uh, specifically get into Volta and the unique business there and your role. But I would love for you to just give some context. So our listeners, 
you know, our product leaders, product marketers, marketing leaders, et cetera, um, we cover a, a array of topics. EV is not not one of those. So I would love for you to just kind of go over what's the, the current state of the electrical vehicle market, the landscape, and how it's evolved over the, the last several years. First, I'll say that for everything that I share, I am presenting my views and they're my own. They're not those of Volta or those of Shell, who I work for. Um, and I think the first thing that I'll clarify is what does EV stand for? It stands for electric vehicles. Um, and that is a new type of vehicle and a shift in our transportation system as it has operated historically. So I give that context. I sometimes get a kick out of seeing phrases like EV vehicles um, just because it's so new yeah, and it's true. so unfamiliar to so many people. And it's it's OK that it's not a familiar acronym. Um, so the second thing to kind of build on that is that we are at a point where our transportation system and particularly vehicles we use are embracing a transformation. There's a lot changing. Um, and EV adoption, people driving EVs is happening faster than it ever has before. So if we look at the data, there are a number of different studies, including one from Ernst & Young, that says more than half of new car buyers have said their next car will be an EV. So it's pretty powerful. That's a pretty big statement. That means that for all of these drivers who are going to be driving electric vehicles, they're going to need a solution that en enables them to charge, whether that's at home, whether that's on their journey in terms of where they're going in their community or beyond. And so there's a big infrastructure shift at play, too, to support this change in transportation at its whole. Um, and I think to to be more colloquial and really bring this down to a level about you and me and us as marketers, the conversation is shifting. I think historically it was if around EVs. Is it going to be an electric transportation system? The conversation is much more now when or how soon. And that's what we're seeing. Now I'd love to hear a little bit about Volta specifically. So charging stations, sure. But I think what was really interesting when I first heard about this is how, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're sort of subsidizing the charging stations with a media network, or maybe I'm not doing that justice, but yeah, describe sort of the model there. This is really interesting for me to talk about, especially thinking about how we first met back when I was running marketing at Moat. Uh, Moat was very focused on measurement across the advertising ecosystem. And at Moat and in several other companies, I had opportunities to really have a landscape view across the advertising industry. One area that I never had focused on was out of home and essentially the physical version of advertising because so much of it has been digital. So Volta, to your point, Devin, operates as both a electric vehicle charging network and a digital media network. Our stations double as EV chargers and digital media, um, which is super interesting from a business perspective and thinking about what is the business model here to a consumer experience, thinking about what's the experience for consumers and thinking about the overlap with some really big trends across media and marketing and advertising. I guess, what are some trends you're seeing in advertising today? And maybe how does that tie into this more creative out-of-home advertising that, that we're seeing you all take place in? So the good news is that it's consistent. Measurement still remains one of the biggest trends that we see. Uh, every marketer is asking, uh, what was the impact of my spend? Did I drive the outcomes that I'm looking to drive, be it clicks, be it sales, be it 
uh, greater return than I've seen before. It's something that my team is always focused on. Are we driving outcomes? And it's something that we see at Bolta with the marketers that we work with. The other thing that uh, is very consistent that I see across advertising, and again, ties into Volta, is like many industries, there is an increased focus in the advertising industry on carbon emissions and how to reduce the carbon emissions from the advertising ecosystem. Uh, organizations like AdNet Zero and a number of others, as well as some of the largest trade associations in media are having active dialogues around how should we measure emissions from advertising? What does it look like through the ecosystem and how does it vary between digital, between out of home, between others? What are the standards that we should measure on and how do we work together to move the industry forward? Uh, it's really just the beginning there. And I think the the third thing that I will highlight is just that these topics are starting to intersect, that a topic like sustainability or carbon emissions or how transportation is evolving, it has an impact on all of the above. Um, and there is a connection between a charging station in front of a property where somebody can see an ad and then be influenced potentially to go make a purchase in the store and then get back in their car and potentially be engaged by a number of different systems. So I'd say how these things intersect is still very early stage, but it's it's really interesting to see that something like measurement continues to be a core theme. I would anticipate that continues to be the theme and something like emissions reduction and a focus on how industries contribute uh, is new and much more cross industry. Yeah, we've worked with a handful of ad tech companies and all of them are trying to figure this out. We've worked with some that specifically focus on emissions measurement and you know their names. I, I don't think I'm supposed to say their names, but definitely an interesting space. And at the same time we were working with this one company, this was like six months or so ago, I noticed I was trying to book flights and I was on, I think Google travel or whatever. And they, they now have, and maybe this is, they've had this for a while. I didn't notice it until about six months ago, but they have, um, emissions measurement as one of the criteria when you're selecting a flight to, uh, to take, which I thought was super interesting. It is. And also when you fly, uh, this is a personal observation, but, uh, I'm from Boston originally and JetBlue big hub in Boston. A lot of the places we go as a family are JetBlue. So my kids are familiar with JetBlue and they are diehard. When you get on a JetBlue flight, they're talking about the emissions of the flight and the various activities that they do to reduce them and mitigate them. So it is definitely much more part of the dialogue than it was ever before. And particularly in industries where you may not expect it, transportation yeah. being one of them. And then ad tech being one of them. So what we discovered doing work with this company was because of how complicated the ad chain is, which is, it's very technical programmatic advertising. I won't go into details, but basically there's so much compute going into that decisioning process just for each impression. Um, and that in itself is what's producing carbon emissions. Just a lot of effort going into that. Thinking about the advertising ecosystem as a whole, that then aligns with another active challenge. There's been so much work done by the ANA and other associations to reduce the complexity of the digital supply chain or the advertising supply chain and actually look at the number of steps along the way, what needs to happen from a computational perspective, and also the cost. If you're the buyer, where does all that money end up going? And so I think what's really interesting is as these movements and these efforts begin to coincide, 
what's the mutual opportunity where if you can simplify the supply chain, it's better for the buyer, it's better for the spend, it's better for the technology, and it's better for carbon emissions. And I think that's where it starts to get really interesting. Yeah. Do you think it's, <laughs> it, is the simplification working? Because my my experience has been, as we've consulted with companies, all different types of industries, ad tech still feels the most complicated. My response is that we don't have a goal yet for folks in the advertising ecosystem. We haven't agreed on what is the standard by which everyone should be evaluated yeah. and who is evaluating. And until that, there are fairly minimal incentives for folks to change. There are brands who are making or agencies who are making commitments and brands who have said they want to buy, but for any supplier along the way or for publishers, and if it's going to be a highly expensive or a highly product defining set of changes, what's their motivation to change until the standard they need to meet is defined? I think that yeah. was one of my lessons from working at Mode, how powerful it is to define the industry standard and then recommend a set of changes to reach the standard or exceed the standard and to ensure folks understand how they're being measured. Um, I think that's very much true that we're still in the early innings of carbon emissions measurement and reduction in advertising and having standard definitions and a set of criteria will accelerate the effort. Until then, I'm with you. I don't think there's yeah. been monumental change yet. Yeah, well said. Like you need to have standardization for sure, and then incentives. Incentives are super important. Um, and I wasn't specifically alluding to to carbon measurement. Just in general, the ad tech ad chain is a complicated, convoluted, you know, process to understand. In my experience, which all for getting that simplified. Um, Agreed. So, I would love to now just hear your thoughts as a, a marketing leader. You've been a marketing leader for years now. You're VP of, of marketing at, at Button. You're now the SVP of marketing at, at Volta Charging. Um, how do you think about positioning for brands um, that, that you've worked for? Three things. Listen to your customers, study the market, and look ahead at your business plan. And I say that because at the end of the day, who is the audience? And what are you trying to achieve with them uh, is pretty critical. If you don't understand your audience and what's going to resonate for them, and if you don't know what your business plan is and what you're trying to achieve and what else is happening in the industry and how you fit in, it's going to be really hard to define some effective positioning. So that's those are kind of the three pillars that I always think about. Um, the, sex thing, the second thing is time. That... Um, again, my experience is in industries that are dynamic and in companies that are high growth. Positioning doesn't last forever. It's really a moment in time. So in thinking about positioning or defining value propositions or building messaging off of it, think about a finite period of time. If you can look at a great set of positioning work to be an 18 to 24 month period, that's the goal. If you try to go too far out or you try to stay too narrow, it might not meet your objectives. Uh, and I think in a lot of cases, if you outgrow your positioning, that means you did it right because your business has changed or the market has changed or customers' needs have changed. And um, I go back to when I was at Button a couple of years ago now, the first big initiative that I led coming in to scale out marketing was to really look at first, what is our mission and vision as a company and where are we looking to go? And then second, what is our positioning for our customers? And Button, in a lot of ways, we operated as a marketplace. We were between 
the brands and the publishers and thinking about how to serve both. Um, and so thinking about positioning, we looked at feedback from our customers. We looked at competitors in the market and the decisions that they were making about how to speak to customers. Um, and for us, positioning was really making some hard decisions about how we were going to prioritize our audiences. And that was a big part of the work. And uh, the initiative, initiative that I led is that we were going to speak to both. And that was a core part of our positioning that it was beneficial that we were speaking to both because we were connecting them. And that was core. Uh, I can imagine that exercise of prioritizing audiences is relatable for any other marketers on here who have multiple audiences that they're thinking about. The thing that's interesting is by the time that I moved on from Button, we were outgrowing that. We were, the market had changed, uh, our business had changed, and thinking about our two audiences as kind of equal was not necessarily the right choice for the business anymore. So on the one hand, I could look at that as bummer, I did all this work. But on the other hand, I think that's, that's what effective positioning is. It's for a moment in time in the market. Um, and outgrowing it is probably a sign that you're you're actually listening to what's going on in the market and you're willing to do the work again to stay relevant. And did you end up moving toward positioning, focusing on um, publishers or brands or what was the, the move? So since I've left, it's shifted to be much more marketer focused. Okay. So it's funny you give an example of marketplace and focusing on which end of the marketplace because I experienced this when I was at Etsy, we had like a whole leadership changeover and a new CEO was put in place. Um, I think the CTO was moved out, like whole big shakeup. And the first thing the new CEO did, he came in and he said, um, our focus has been somewhat convoluted. You know, it's a marketplace. It's like you have teams spun up to focus on sellers. We have uh, teams spun up, focus on consumers, buyers, and we don't really know what our priority is. And that's changing today. Our focus is now on buyers. Um, we have a bad buying experience that's paramount to our business. Sellers come to Etsy because they want to make money. They can't make money. If the buyers don't have a great experience, we're not pulling more buyers into the marketplace. And it really set the tone for the company for marketing for sure, but just the company that the whole tone was set with that positioning. Um, and I've actually written a blog post about it. They've, the stock and the performance of, of Etsy has skyrocketed since uh, since that time. I wasn't really a part of the big rebound there. I left for Amazon right about that time, but it's been really interesting to watch and see that unfold. And ultimately, I think it ties back to that pretty uh, like singular decision that he made at that point. Um, so very interesting. So in light of this podcast theme, embracing erosion, you know, you just alluded to the fact that positioning and messaging is not static and it changes. Um, I would love for you to maybe share a few instances where you or Volta Charging have had to adapt your strategy uh, to stay ahead in, in the market. Sure. So the first one I want to tie back to what we were just talking about measurement and focus of measurement on measurement for marketers. Um, Again, previously when I was at Button, we're focusing on mobile commerce for brands and for publishers and our brands, the marketers we work with were increasingly holding us to incrementality targets. How much did the spend with us actually drive additional benefit that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise or incremental benefit that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise? Um, and in order to satisfy these partners and then essentially stay ahead, we had to define a framework for consistently measuring and proving out incrementality 
Incrementality is tricky because first you make an imp you do drive something incremental, and then how do you measure consistent incrementality? It's complicated. Um, and so that was a commitment that we made, and we had a framework for partners, and we're delivering that. And it then led to a number of business questions around what level of investment would we make in this, in delivering a solution for our partners? Would it continue to be something that we offered for two clients to help them uh, understand the benefit of their investment with us? Would it be a product level feature and capability that we built in and that we invested development resources to build? And how did we continue to demonstrate incrementality after that first impact? So that was one really specific example at Button that then having been at Volta ties through and that at Volta, uh, one of the things that we have done in the last couple of years on the media side of the house is really show up as leaders in digital out of home on measurement for the marketers who are working with us and for the, the brands and agencies essentially who are buying campaigns with Volta. We now give them the opportunity to demonstrate or to understand their impact across a number of metrics. Of course, uh, brand, brand awareness, brand equity, perception, all of the above through more qualitative studies. But now new things. How are you driving sales in store, incremental sales, return on ad spend, incremental return on ad spend? And we have a number of case studies where we've demonstrated that. As you can imagine, we always had the hypothesis that being the last high impact screen somebody saw directly before they entered the store would have an impact on sales. Now we have a lot of proof points to show that and also to benchmark it against other channels or other opportunities to spend. And that's been really game changing for us to be ahead of uh, ahead of our customers and really looking at what else is happening in the market and bringing it to Volta, bringing it into digital out of home. And then probably the last thing to mention, uh, something you may have seen recently in the news Automakers agreeing to adopt Tesla's charging experience, the North American charging standard plug. Um, in the U.S., there have historically been two different charging experiences, Tesla and then everyone else. Many industry experts thought that the U.S. would move to adopt a single charging port, uh, CCS. Until recently, Ford announced that they would allow their EV models to charge at Tesla chargers in 2024 and would be building NAX ports into their EV models starting in 2025. And so as you can imagine, this has driven a flurry of adaptation across the industry. And for anybody who's following the news, there have been announcements and headlines almost every week on this topic. So the port itself is different for a Tesla versus a, a Ford historically, but they're moving to standardizing that. Is that what that means? Yeah. So the way to think about it is that the actual... Um, the plug that you plug yeah. in to charge yeah. a Tesla looks different than the plug that you would plug in to charge another type of electric vehicle. And there is an adapter. Um, is that an ideal consumer experience? I'll let anyone listening make their own decision <laughs> about that. Got it. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. Well, the next topic I'd love to dive into is another theme that I always highlight in the podcast, which is decision-making. I am sort of obsessed with how people make decisions and how people make very different, have different approaches to making decisions. Um, I often refer back to principles that we've built here at Fluvio. A lot of the decisions we make internally at the company are tied to these principles. It's something I learned during my time at Amazon. Amazon has something like 14 leadership principles now, 12 or 14. We only have four, but we use that as sort of a guiding framework for the company. And then I also sort of 
have my own. Um, but I'd love to hear from you. Is there, do you have a process that you sort of walk yourself through when you make decisions? So yes. And I think going back to having guiding principles or an operating model, for me, it's very consistent with how I operate both as an individual and an executive. And I operate macro to micro, looking at the big picture and then how do things fit into it. And so for decisions, I am asking a set of questions. First, what is the decision to be made? I think so often and in so many scenarios, you're faced with the decision and that's actually not what you're really making a decision on. And so taking the time to clarify uh, what is this decision can make a big impact on the outcome. Um, the second thing, what is the potential impact of this decision? What will happen based on the outcome? Because again, understanding that can often very much clarify how to approach the decision making. And then third, what are the risks of this decision? That's probably going back to my time on the Hill that we discussed earlier uh, and thinking about who else, because when I'm thinking about the risks of the decision, how, do, how does this decision potentially affect relationships, affect the industry, the business, the people? Um, and those are all things that I want to make sure that I've evaluated before making any decision. Having been in fast-paced environments, I think a couple other things, uh, speed matters, and that is what I will say about speed. And I've learned over the past few years, there are very few decisions that can't be undone, uh, yeah. but you can't get time back. Yes, I agree fully with that. I have found that depending on the, the company you're working with, assuming this is a company decision you're making or a business decision that, uh, that sometimes can be challenged based on the company culture. Like I think Amazon, technically one of their principles is around speed. But what I found is that you can't move as quickly in a company like Amazon. And there are a lot of checkpoints and there are things that, you know, at Fluvio, this small company that we operate, we just don't have the same barriers or the same like checkpoints, essentially. Um, so it can be hard from my experience to balance, you know, moving really quickly with making the right decisions. But I think you've provided the right context that it's pretty rare where you're coming across a situation in which you make a decision and it's a one-way door, uh, which is what a term I got at Amazon as well. Like you can't come back. Most decisions are two-way doors. So you can revert back. What's interesting too, knowing that we just talked about positioning is the effect of the decision or what is the potential impact of the decision can vary a lot based on a company's position and um, how it operates within a market. So at Moat, one of our values was clock speed. We called it the Moat way, and that was about speed because we were building a new framework for measurement for the industry. And we were looking to be the leader in this. And it was a rapidly changing ecosystem and we were growing fast. And there were benefits to be found by being faster and being first in an environment where, say, you're the biggest or you are the incumbent leader and there is risk of being dethroned, potentially. Uh, the type of decision or the value of considering every potential outcome or risk may outweigh speed. And so I think mm -hmm. there is there is something to be said. And so my position of speed matters is very much related to the type of environments in which I've operated. But I could certainly see in a different environment how a different framework may matter to your point of within Amazon and how yeah. that speed actually worked. Or in politics, I'm sure <laughs> you have to think about a lot of risks and the downstream impact. And that's why there's a lot of process and that things can take time and that in that space, I'm sure it makes sense. 
So I'd love to dive into characteristics that um, either you've built or that you respect. Like what are things that you think great leaders either have or should focus on building? Couple things um, that I want to highlight. The first is I am a firm believer in leading by example. And I use the word leading very careful here because part of being a leader, whether that is formal in a title or a description or informal in people who are viewing you as a source and a resource, uh, is people looking to you for the path forward. And it's really important to be intentional about what they'll see when they're looking. Um, and that is a ongoing, that is not a moment in time, that is not what you did on one project, that is an operating model. Um, that is, I really think, a shift in mindset for a lot of folks. Um, so that's that's the first one. Um, the second one that I have both learned and observed is knowing your strengths and your weaknesses. Lean into your strengths, go there, focus there, create as much value as you can. And then at the same time, build for your weaknesses. Um, give others the opportunity to shine and Make yourself more effective to be a better leader for your team or your org or your business. And I can give some specific examples on that, that for folks who know me, I am an introvert defined by nature. Susan Cain's book, Quiet, Changed My Life. Um, I, of course, am social and network and love being in market at events and with clients. But my strength is in the thinking work. And on my last couple of teams, I have hired someone generally for the same role who is the extrovert personified and whose strength is in building relationships in the org with customers with vendors all the above and that has absolutely escalated the value of the team because for me it will always be a high effort minimally beneficial exercise and for these folks it is a low effort huge impact to the team um, and i think for most leaders there is something similar uh, for them. And it's really important to understand that and be able to build for it. And the last thing for leaders, and when I think about some of the best leaders that I have worked with and for, is listening. So often at a certain point in your career, you become, in, in your career, in your life, you become the person talking and providing coaching, providing mentoring, providing way of looking at things. But you have to be listening. You have to be paying attention to the folks around you, to the market, to the industry, to the business around you, and allow yourself to be open to have enough information coming in to be able to bring something out that's valuable. You can, there's that uh, sort of always out there phrase of you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Um, but I, I really just bring it down to making the time to have enough information come in so that the information you're putting out is valuable and new for the folks who are who are hearing it. Yeah, a couple of things I'm going to follow on there. So um, leading by example, I absolutely agree with that. I can't remember where I read this or I heard this, but essentially you have to earn being a leader. Like you have to be exceptional at what you do and people have to inherently look to you as someone they can learn from. Uh, and then, you know, inherently you become a leader. It doesn't even mean you're a, someone's manager or you're leading a department you can be a leader by just being an individual contributor that the rest of the team goes to for for guidance. And, and that's a really great place to start. Then you said supplementing your own skill set or your weaknesses. You're an introvert. I'm, I'm an introvert too. I, I do well and I like one-on-one -on -one conversations like this. 
I don't love presenting. I sort of have to do it sometimes like on a stage, but it's not my comfort zone and it drains me. And I, at the same time, recognize that as a company, we need to be doing these things. And luckily I've found some folks in the team that get invigorated by doing this sort of work. And we had this concept of building a workshop service, something that I don't want to do because I know that would be exceptionally draining. I can't imagine sitting in a room and having to walk executives through a bunch of exercises. It's, it's exhausting for me, but I know it's a big opportunity for the business. And so luckily I have a principal and a senior consultant who are excited about that and gives them energy. So it's like, great, <laughs> hand that over to them. I can guide you and help where, where it makes sense, but like, this is all for you. Um, and then the final thing you mentioned, which is listening, has come up over and over again when I ask folks on the podcast. And uh, I've experienced that um, everywhere I've been as well, particularly in these big sort of management review meetings at Amazon, the leader in those rooms would always be the last to speak, which is something that I need to improve upon for sure. I feel like I do too much talking. Um, is there anyone in your career, and this could be personally or professionally, that you think has had um, the, the biggest influence on you? So I have, I have two. I'm sitting in my office right now where next to me is a picture of my grandmother who is on the cover of the Boston Globe magazine with her feet up on her desk under the title, Women Entrepreneurs, Is It Their Decade? And wow. I won't tell you, I won't tell you what decade it was, but it was not the 2010s or 2020s. Um, and so she was a female entrepreneur in a generation where that was really not the norm. Um, and I think one of the things that really stands out to me is that the things that made her a human made her an effective entrepreneur. She was known for being thrifty and liking a deal. And part of the way she grew her business was she bought the penny ads in the papers at the time that nobody wanted and put great ads in them. And it was effective and got a lot of sales out of them. So very creative. And I just take from that the lesson of not staying within the lines of what's expected and being willing to kind of go outside and, and follow who you are. Because again, entrepreneur in this generation and just having the... Uh, interest in putting your feet up on your desk on the cover of a magazine. That is just a statement in itself. So that's that's one. Um, the second, I think back to a manager earlier in my career who was listening and leading by example personified. And there are so many things that I will take away from having watched him silently uh, that were not things he said or things he did, but the way that he operated within the people he worked with and the example he set, that I think is always going to be who I envision as leadership in my mind. And it's not a lot of the stereotypes of a leader being loud or flashy or anything else. It's the moments of listening and the taking pauses to go around your round up in the office to see people at their desks and to make thoughtful decisions and all of the above. Um, and I think also uh, thinking about my career, it's really community, whether I'm in a member of Chief, which is a women's networking group, and I'm in a number of CMO communities, and I participate in a number of groups within the advertising ecosystem. And I've really learned from being in these high growth environments how powerful it is to work together and be able to do more as a company or as a team than any one company can do on their own. Um, and so I take the influence of these groups that are fostering community to really um, ensure that community is 
something that I'm considering that my teams are considering for major initiatives, for things that we're doing and, and for how we're informing our work in the business. You have an amazing grandmother. That's, that's awesome. Um, we could have spent more time talking about community and how that's going to be an increasingly part of marketing and, and brand building. So maybe that'll be a second, second episode, but uh, we're coming up at time and I really appreciate how much time you've spent with us before we jump. Is there a, a good way for our listeners to follow along your career journey and um, also follow along what Volta's doing? Sure. So I, let's look at LinkedIn. Um, I'm Nicole Silver and Volta is Volta Charging. And I look forward to writing or blogging again at some point in the future. But right now, my focus is really on uh, my role and making sure that we can make as big of an impact as possible on the future of electric transportation. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. And I'll catch you soon. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any feedback or comments or would like to have certain guests on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you want to acquire additional product marketing resources, please do visit fluviomarketing.com slash resources. Until next time.